Well, empty nest is upon me. I, I did not think it was going to come this fast. I know you hear old people say that all the time. Enjoy that time with the kids. It'll go so fast. But when you're a mom or a dad and you're freaking exhausted, you can't wait for it to go fast. But I can tell you as I prepare for my baby girl to head off to UCI this fall, I will have many a night where it's just Carolyn and I. And I'm more really worried for her because I, what in the world is she going to do with just me in the house? It has been such a joy to have our kids home. And I think about how different life is from when I went away to college and, and the communication that can take place now. Uh, you know, I'll be able to text and FaceTime as long as they'll pick up or answer the texts. But there's quite a bit of connection I can make with my kids as they're away at college that didn't happen unless you were willing to pay the $3 a minute for long distance with your parents, and I just wasn't willing. But you did from time to time get letters, and that's really an amazing thing. I've heard comedians talk about this these days, about how if you get a handwritten letter from a friend, you're almost afraid to open it, like something really terrible has happened, you know? It's like, oh, my Lord, what happened? You know, did they go to an Amish community? I mean, why are they writing in pen? And, and this is what is so different is that when, when, when you wrote a letter to somebody, uh, you, you presumed you weren't going to see them for a while. And so you would, at the tail end of that letter, you would include a lot of information that may uh, be really important to you. But it kind of comes, if you can recall ever writing one of these, and if you never have, try someday. It's really fun. It's almost like a staccato sort of approach to it. You're like, oh, and don't forget this, and oh, don't forget that, and yeah, this. Okay. Hope to see you soon. Love you lots. Right? I mean, this is kind of sort of what you do. You, you give these kind of last-minute sort of bullet points so that you can you know, share what you're going to share. And here in the last two sermons of James, really the last three if you include last week, this is what James is doing. His sermon is in many ways an address to people and addressed to people in churches, and he realizes he's coming to the end, and now he's going to start firing information at us at a pretty good rate here. And one of the things he is going to do is communicate a lot about what he feels for people and what he thinks is really important for us as believers. As parents, much to the chagrin of our kids, we might conclude with words of wisdom or clear direction in the event of an emergency. James begins his section here in James 5.13 by saying this, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. James last week spoke to those suffering because of persecution or hardship. We extrapolate that out to our 21st century trials and difficulties. They're very real, and God is as concerned about them as he is about starvation in other parts of the world. He's omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient. He can handle it all. So you need never go, oh, I know I'm not starving in uh, you know, some third world country, so I should quit complaining. I mean, if it helps you to quit complaining, fantastic, but understand something. God is concerned about what's going on in your life. Just because you have clothing doesn't mean God loves you any less or is any less concerned about the things that are breaking your heart. James was saying to people like us, though, that prayer was a means to enduring, that we were going to, he was calling us to an endurance birthed 
in a real relationship with Jesus and focused on the future return of Jesus. So in some ways, while he wasn't saying, you know, hey, suck it up, you know, life is hard, he was not saying, hey, pray real hard and fix this. You can get rid of this suffering and rid of this difficulty. Jesus said with clarity, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But take heart, he'd overcome the world. This week, James is going to shift gears. And he's going to tell us there are some things that are troubling in this world that the Lord wants to deal with right now, in the here and now. And he's going to encourage us to pray, particularly for healing. He's going to challenge us to pray that God would work through the church in particular to bring transformation to circumstances that are in our present time. And the way we do that is through prayer. If you're suffering, you pray, he asks. If you're happy, you pray with songs. That's what praise is. When we sing hymns or we sing choruses, Sometimes it's best to do that with your eyes closed if you know the words because you're saying, I want to center and enjoy and focus my energy. Now, some of you are really spiritual and can pray with your eyes open and all that. Those of us with spiritual ADD often find it helpful to close the eyeballs. So, you know, it's okay, Jesus, focus, Chucky, focus. And, that, and, and this is kind of sort of what has to happen for some of us. That said, singing is merely you expressing praise and thanks for who God is and what he is doing in your life. And these are the two ends of the spectrum. They also presume a relationship with God that involves regular talking with him and seeing him as the one who providentially oversees both the good and the bad. The challenge for many of us is not praying when we're suffering. The challenge for most of us is to continue to seek God, continue to pray, continue to give thanks and give God the glory when things are going well. And when you think about this verse, when do you do you have any trouble getting motivated to pray when things are bad? Not me. But I can tell you there have been too many times in my life where things were good and I did not stop to sing praise and give thanks. To that end, I want to talk about prayer and and really where its power is, what its purpose is, I want you and I to be able to look at this passage in a fresh new way. And at the conclusion of our service today, our elders are actually going to be forward here during communion to pray with you if you have a need. I'll begin today by saying the first, or stating the first of two thoughts for our morning, and, and as specifically they regard prayer. And that is that the power of prayer, James says, is the person of the Lord. Uh, What I mean by that is is that oftentimes in the Christian walk, we can start talking about the power of God as if the power isn't a person. We start talking about it instead of he when we refer to the Holy Spirit. We start referring to God as kind of a genie who doesn't have a personality instead of, you know, or or something you, you, you use to get what you want. And what I would like us to see in James's passage here this morning is that he's trying to emphasize that the Lord himself is doing the work, and albeit through means, through other causes, secondary causes. James 5, 14 and 15, this is what James says. Is, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith 
will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. So many things contained in this, but I, I have to start with the end of this section here where it says, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Let me liberate those of you who were a part of a Word of Faith church at some point in your experience, or a health and wealth prosperity gospel church. You see, if you incorrectly read this passage, you will start to think that your faith, your prayer of faith, is what is going to bring this about. And that can be sort of self-condemning. You can find yourself saying, I don't have enough faith. What am I going to do? I don't know what to believe. This is about the elders and the church praying for you. Their prayer of faith is the means by which God brings about the healing. This is not about a broken person being able to sprint down the aisle with their crutches in their hand. This is about us coming before the Lord and saying, we don't have even the ability to do this. Lord, I am humbly coming to the elders of my church and the people of my church. I'm calling for them to pray for me. And the prayer of faith is not, and you know what, I'm going to stand up here and I'm going to muster up all the faith I can. I'm going to start firing off scriptures from memory. This is about me humbly going before the Lord. And his means of grace is the, are these leaders in our church who will come to you and say, on behalf of the church and in the name of Jesus, we pray for this healing. It is that prayer of faith that James is talking about. The sick are to call the elders of the church. Now, this is a verse that could be overlooked often in terms of the significance it has for understanding ecclesiology or church governance, uh, the study of church leadership. First, it does describe someone who is so ill that they're desperate. And many times, they are isolated, and they need the elders to come to them, which, of course, I'd like to point out that we are willing to do. One of the great joys we have is coming to the you know, coming to visit people when they're sick, and that may not be a joy for you, but this is a call for the pastor because, you know, we, this is Jesus coming to us. This is the gospel. We, we don't roll out of our hospital bed to go to church to get prayer. Um, the gospel is Jesus is coming to you. You're too broken to get to him. So whether you're celebrating the birth of a child or you are sick as a dog in bed, um, if you need help, this is our joy. We like to come. Elders love to come. We'll come two by two, as the scriptures will say, and, and pray for you. Now, it also describes a specific ecclesiastical authority and ability that is given to the plurality of elders. Now, this is important because most modern expressions of so-called healing, and I say so-called because how many times do, do investigative journalists have to show the absolute facade and lie that is some faith healing ministries before we're all going to recognize that it's not all from God. Real healing takes place and they actually get healed. So-called healing has been done through individuals or superstar faith healers. And this is a really interesting touch point in our culture uh, by nature, and of course in our culture, we're caught between loathing anything that smacks of authority, like elders. We're going to endow these elders with the authority of God. And of course, our natural American and human reaction is, yeah, not me, thank you very little. 
But then at the same time, there is this almost bizarre fascination with fame making reality TV a reality. And it also means that we are just fixated and, and obsessed with celebrity and power. And so we sort of kind of like, our, our culture is sort of kind of built for the celebrity faith healer. Because we want to believe that maybe we could be that person. We want to believe that it could come that quick. That it would never involve any struggle or difficulty. We like to believe that people are a lot bigger than they really are. And the New Testament gives us guidance to say that this is going to happen through a plurality of leaders. And there's a reason why. Because God wants to make sure that when people see the power of prayer, they see the Lord and not the person through whom the prayer and the anointing of oil is coming. The New Testament direction on how we're to pursue healing is through the church. The elders are patterned after the disciples of Jesus who were given the authority to pray for the sick in Jesus' name. I refer to Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts. That's very different than your contemporary faith healer's wardrobe and entourage. But to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. So you have this picture of a group of people going out humbly dependent on Jesus, leaving behind that which would make them think they could do this on their own. And he sends them out two by two, and there are reasons for this type of plurality. One would be so that no one person would ever be seen as the source of healing other than the Lord, and that no one would ever be tempted to think that they were the ones specially selected by God with this special endowment of power. You know how bad that is for us? Human beings are not, we don't have the capacity to handle that kind of glory and that kind of power. You see, it is the Lord, not the power of prayer or the oil, who will raise up this, the broken. James says this in James 5, 14 through 15. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So again, it's in the name of the Lord, in his authority, and the prayer of faith done by those in the church will save the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up. It's the Lord doing the work. I I understand the fascination with the gifted and powerful, and and I think it's one of the great... Um, Achilles' heels of our culture's church culture. Not prism specifically, I mean American evangelicalism. We love celebrity. This person is so gifted, so powerful. And I find myself doing that. What happens oftentimes, though, is we often indirectly direct people away from the Lord, who's actually the one doing the work And the person whom he's using is an unbelievably broken, sinful person just like you. Oh, they may not have the salacious things going on, but I've watched pastors and 
and, and preachers, and I've been sort of kind of near some that had a lot of going on, and I have my own heart to testify to the truth of the matter, and that is that they're broken human beings just like you. They are just fortunate, and it is only by grace that they have been used to speak to your life. They're as fallible, they are as prone to wander every bit as you and I. And so what happens in that is that you and I are confident that it's the Lord doing the work. In our sinful nature, we pastors and leaders would love that you not see us as we are. It is our nature to want to be worshipped, our broken, sinful nature to want to be God. So the worst thing in the world for us to do is to put on the cape and have you call us Superman, when in reality we're not even Clark Kent, although I do have a journalism degree. Just a side note. Friends, I, I, I can't express to you enough that when you would come to get prayer, even today, that there's nothing special. And I can speak for the other elders, I'm confident. There's nothing special. God has ordained a church to be an expression of his love and his power. And it is about the Lord. And that's why we do it this way instead of having a special Chuck healing service out at PCC where people come forward and I whack them upside the head and impress the televangelist people with my power and might. Uh, It's so that people will see Jesus and not me. Are you kidding? I got nothing. I got the word of God, which is God's, and I've got the spirit of God, which is God. And we We have only Jesus for you. The power of prayer is the person of the Lord. It's talking to someone who compassionately hears you and is ready to heal even the brokenest parts of your life. So the purpose of prayer, what is it? The purpose, if the power is the person, the purpose of prayer is is really the presence of the Lord. We say it every week, so much so that I feel that you think I'm lazy and I just don't want to preach about anything else, but you and I were made for hanging out with Jesus. I'd say made for fellowship, but I don't want the people at Fellowship Monrovia to think I'm ripping off their catchphrase, you know? We are actually made to encounter Jesus in a powerful way. Our souls are dying for thirst. We sang this morning, better is, or have we sung it yet? I'm sorry. Yeah, I thought so. I was going to say, man, have I had a brain hiccup or what? Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Which means to say, and I was praying and talking with Brooks about this recently, that you know the, the real pursuit, the real step of faith for many of us is to say that if I could just have one day in three years where I experience the, the fullness of God's grace, where I see him as he is, holy and lifted up and yet gracious and compassionate to me, My soul will be more satisfied than if I have three years of chasing after the garbage of this world. Better is one day than a thousand elsewhere. So God intends to give us abundantly what we need. Our problem is is that we 
tend to think that if we can get a thousand little days of accumulating crap or getting people's attention or any number of sins that we think is really a great thing, that that's going to be more satisfying than one day in the Lord's presence. It's difficult. We won't until eternity know uh, just an unending series of days of encounter with the real presence of God that overwhelms us with joy and worship. That's eternity in this world There are more days where we are searching for him than we feel like we've actually found him. But when we do, that one day is better than the thousand we could have spent pursuing all sorts of stuff that may in the end actually harm us. James 15, James 5, 15, B and 16, this is what the Lord says through James. And about you and I, if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. James has said that through our interaction with Jesus, we're forced to confront our ongoing sin and struggle. And you know, as I do, that when we are in periods of rebellion against the Lord, we avoid prayer, fellowship, and church attendance like nuclear waste. We, we avoid anything that reminds us of the presence of the Lord because our consciences bother us. We don't want to confess. We don't want to acknowledge what we know is wrong. So we go, yeah, I just don't feel like going this Sunday or, yeah, I'll skip community group this week or, you know, the community group, they're starting to irritate the crud out of me. I think we need a new community group. You know, and how many times have any of us been guilty of saying, I don't like our church anymore. It's starting to, you know, get up in my kitchen, you know, or something along those lines. And you go, you know, at what point do I have to say, something's really got to get adjusted in me? See, the purpose of prayer is to draw you and I into the presence of God in a new and powerful way. And so when we sin against him and don't want to apologize and turn from it, or when we sin against others, we then will shut off the means of grace. The irony of this, or the sad irony, I should say, of this is that in the absence of looking to the Lord and his people and his spirit and his word, we just keep drinking from that cesspool as if it's going to satisfy our thirst. We just keep dipping deeper. You see, and the Lord has called you and I to come back to him because this is where the source of water is. This is where the source of life is. The Lord has called us to dive more deeply into him. His presence is what our soul is longing for. This is why James has connected prayer to both the authority of Jesus expressed in the plurality of elders and elders in the church and the body of Christ, where this church represents his presence in our lives. This week I was visiting with a brother here at the church and we were lamenting so often we are prone to wander specifically when things are going well. We wish we were people who, when things were going wonderfully, would be equally as giving to sing praises to God and to continue on the path of total dependence, conscious dependence on Him. And unfortunately, we sing this hymn all the time about our proneness to wander. Our sinful nature lives for our glory 
so that when things go well, we are prone to take the opportunity we have when all eyes are on us and soak it in for our own pleasure. The Apostle Paul knew this struggle really well. don't know if you're familiar with the story, but it's actually one of my favorites because it reminds me, even Paul at the pinnacle of Christian ministry recognized his complete brokenness. He, he said he got to see heaven effectively. He, he got to see things that no one else has been allowed to see. He'd been given a spiritual existential experience that would put any of ours to shame. We'd be like, I've never done that. Have you seen heaven? I certainly haven't. And if I did, I'd probably write a book and try to sell it to everybody about, never mind. So in Paul's case, it was legit. But the answer to Paul's sight of heaven from God's perspective was not, hey, Paul, let's use this experience you've had to make you even more famous. Quite the contrary. I read, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. James concludes today's passage in similar fashion. Speaking of the power of prayer as it is done by a, quote, righteous person. And this would tend to make some focus on the righteousness of that individual apart from Christ. Rather, James is assuming that a person, or in this case, elders, personal growth in Christ-like character has been forged in close relationship with the Holy Spirit. This righteousness that makes their prayer effective is only made possible by Christ's gospel in the first place and only fruitful as it has been nurtured by the Spirit's presence in our lives. Something magical about it. It's like when I get offered by a buddy to go to a Dodger game. Right? A few weeks back, a friend of mine called and said, I know somebody who's got amazing seats. He's not using them tonight. Would you like them? Yeah. So I called some pals, and we went, and we sat in the lap of luxury on somebody else's dime. See, it is, it's about relationships. That's how my friends were able to get to the Dodger game. I knew somebody. And see, for us, when it comes to healing, it isn't that anybody who is an elder or anybody who would pray for you is somebody impressive. They, they just know somebody who is. Elijah was an ordinary man. But according to James 5, 16b through 18, Elijah heard the Lord through continuous reflective prayer. And it says in James, and this is how James concludes his time together with us, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah with a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain for, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. 
See, Elijah is pointed out as being an ordinary person with our very nature, and yet he was powerful in his prayer because he knew God. He talked with God. He was growing in his desire to love God through trusting God and giving obedience to God's word. You see, the end game for God, the ultimate purpose of our struggles and presence and his answers are not so we can have what we want. Unless what we want is him. See, ultimately, the goal is that we'd be drawn more deeply into engagement with the presence of the Lord. And that's really what this is all about. The creator of the universe created you and me to have this incredible banquet with him. And we're waiting in line at fast food restaurants, eating stuff that's bad for us. Because you can get it quick. So on September 18th, we'll venture out again into a 12-week prayer project that we've deemed the chapel project. Sure, we need God's provision for our mission to continue moving forward in this community, and particularly in this facility. But the ultimate purpose for our need is to pray that we as a church would collectively seek the presence of God and see the goodness of God and have that goodness of God light a fire on us that would make us love him. And I I know this is going to sound kind of crazy, but I think the worst thing that could happen to us as a church would be that a person would write a check today for the entire project before we had an opportunity to ask God for his provision. I think that could be the worst thing for us. Why, you might ask Because I can speak for myself and a couple other friends of mine who are here who said the same. We probably wouldn't recognize God's provision as such. And we'd likely be drawn to thinking it was coincidence or that it was because we're doing such a fine job here that why wouldn't people want to give us money? Or that we're entitled to this happening. See, God likes us. Sure, he's going to do this kind of stuff. Why wouldn't he? But mostly it's because scripture says that God uses suffering and struggle to draw us more closely to him. So I invite you to join me to pray, yes, that God would meet our needs. But more importantly, would you join me this fall in praying that while we're seeking the Lord's provision for our needs comprehensively, that we would mature in our relationships with him through our growing passion for prayer. Let us pray. Lord, today we completely and totally recognize our need for you and would ask that uh, you would move mightily in this time of ministry where we not only come to the table to receive communion, but some come to be touched by you through the elders of our church because they have need. Would you move in a way that would remind us that one day in your court is better than a thousand.